Welcome to Pitch It To Me Podcast, a show about the subjective past, present, and potential future of flesh and blood design. Boys, what's cooler than being cool? Ice cold! All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Today's episode will be about Icelander's ascension into living legend. On Red Pitch, Fuzzy will open up the history books and point to important moments in Icelander's past. On Yellow Pitch, Clark will ask the important questions like, is ice healthy? And why do we hate ice so much? On Blue Pitch, Joel will propose some new ideas for what the future of Elemental Ice Wizard could look like. You can find us across all socials, such as TikTok and Instagram, at Digitumi Podcast. I'm Joel. I'm Clark. And I'm Fuzzy. There were so many more Z's in there. I'm Fuzzy. <laughs> Yeah, there we go. So she's gone. Yeah, <laughs> I'm very happy Icelander's gone. Uh, she hit Living Legend fairly recently. Uh, we're, we got on top of this episode. <laughs> Lexi took a bit, but Icelander we got to in a fairly reasonable time frame. Yeah, we were like recording other stuff, and like Lexi hit Living Legend, and we didn't have a chance to talk about it for like a month. And then, like, more heroes started rotating out. <laughs> yeah. And we're like, okay, we got to get on this. Like, Are we going to do one of these episodes for each of the five Blitz heroes? Oh, oh I don't think so. I think <laughs> we're just going to do this for, like, CC. Yeah. yeah. Um, but still, this is a big moment in the game. There are no more ice heroes in the meta at all. So we want to use this as the opportunity to sort of talk about, like, what was ice doing to the meta and how it's going to shift it up. There's a lot less pressure to run blues now. That's going to be really interesting to see how yeah, everything ye- shakes out. Yellow line gamers rise up. <laughs> <laughs> or even red liners, you know? Mm-hmm. Although they were kind of already doing their yeah, thing. Yeah, they were fine. <laughs> yeah. We also recently launched a Discord server, and we want to see all of your beautiful faces over there typing in our channels, sharing your memes, sharing your cool custom card ideas, talking about what you love about the game, what you're passionate about when it comes to flesh and blood. I would love to hear like ideas you have for the show and the discord would be a great place for you guys to um, come up with suggestions and stuff. What do you want to hear on the show? We want to hear from you. We want to talk to you screen to screen. <laughs> screen. Yeah. Screen to screen. Uh, the link for that is going to be in the description as well as probably a pinned comment in the uh, YouTube. Yeah. We're on like our Instagram bio, Twitter bio. Yeah, we'll like pin it to the top of our Twitter or whatever. Well, Fuzzy will make sure it gets everywhere. We're going to paste it all over the Pitch It To Me podcast stuff. So I'm going to kick things off for today's episode in Red Pitch. I want to talk about key moments in Icelander's history that I think of when we think of like from start to finish Icelander as a hero. And the best place to start is the beginning. Right, guys? (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I kind of like in media res as a nice narrative structure. <laughs> I do love me some nonlinear storytelling. Um, I'm not going to get that fancy today. We're going to start with Everfest, where there was a young hero called Icelander. And she was printed kind of like how they do in these supplemental sets sometimes, where like they'll just print a hero with like very little like card pool context. Like, Icelander had... A little bit more support than Guinness What You Need, which was printed in the same set, right? <laughs> like these two young heroes. Kind of like, it reminds me of Yoji, right? Yeah. Mm. Like they didn't exactly print any like Guardian cards that I think they expected to go with Yoji in Dynasty. Just some of that like offhand stuff. So Icelander comes out and there's no Ice Wizard cards in the set. You can play all the same Wizard cards from 
Crucible and Arcane Rising. And there was things like Aether Wildfire that was printed in Everfest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's definitely like stuff you can do, but And Ice was out by that point. Yeah, there's yeah. the ice stuff from Lexi in um Oldham. Tales of Aria. From Tales of Aria, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was just kind of closing my eyes and shaking my hands tells you the name of the set. Um so there was some stuff, and I like remember trying to see lists for Icelander after she was released in Uprising, and like looking them up. And the ones that would be online on like FabDB were the old ones, and I'd be like, "Why aren't they running any like ice bolts or <laughs> like any of the Ice Wizard stuff?" It's like, oh, this is like this predates yeah. <laughs> me playing Fab because I started playing around this time where like. Mm. Uprising was the first pre-release that I went to. I like was kind of starting to learn the game after Everfest was released, but no one was talking about Icelander. And mm-hmm. I think she really was kind of performing. Like she wasn't super bad. You could still like play wizard stuff and play Stormstriders. I'm sure you could get away with some stuff. Yeah, I remember uh some of the YouTube videos that came out after she she was released, uh officially in Uprising. They were really highlighting this. Uh, Frost Hex like combo game plan like mm-hmm. all, all in one turn, but I think Phi was like the the true like showrunner because he he still had stubbies at that time. He had belittle. He had everything uh, at his disposal, so he was kind of like doing really well both in Adroma and into Icelander for a while. So she didn't really get a lot of uh, recognition right at the start. Yeah, and personally, I remember like going to pre-release and like a lot of really my first limited experience in Flesh and Blood. And like Icelander just being a weird hero where mm. I have to figure out like end of turn things. There was this card, Read the Ripples, that I thought was super good because <laughs> it was basically a cantrip. Yeah. And they were like, no, 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 no. Like it's at the end of your turn and you can't like do anything. You can't like play the card that you draw because you don't have priority. I'm like, what the, what, why would I play this card then? <laughs> it doesn't do anything. And um, learning a lot about the game through Icelander and the her mechanics. She definitely made you learn the game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a speed priority, yep. frostbites, layers, like it all the wonkiness that flesh and blood rules really present, it, it can kind of be just encapsulated in Icelander. Yeah, so there's one hero in particular that I I would say most people should play as or against to learn the fundamentals of Fab, and that's Dorinthia. And I think Icelander was also like the next big milestone in learning how to play against like control decks as a whole and learning like timing windows when you should or should not play something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really enjoyed her for for that reason as well. Mm-hmm. And then I also was started getting into the competitive scene like a couple months after that. And when I started looking into like what's the buzz competitively, it was Michael Hamilton's winning 2022 Worlds with Icelander. Yeah. And I want to give credit to him, but also his testing team, the Wolfpack. And how they together came up with this idea of like, okay, Icelander is actually really strong if you run these well-statted, efficient attacks like Wounded Bull. Mm-hmm. Like, look, you're already running a bunch of blues. It practically says on the hero card, run a bunch of blues. <laughs> run these really good generics that can swing for eight with those blues. Threaten this damage, right? And if your opponent like doesn't block, you can still load in a sweet disruptive effect and ruin their five card hand turn and it's just so much value coming out from one hero you're attacking them from all angles deal a bunch of physical damage deal some arcane damage deal some disruption and it was a powerhouse and michael hamilton then continued to win like callings battle hardens after 
winning worlds with Bullander, which is what it came to be called. Bullander, because like wounded bull Icelander, Bullander. Mm-hmm. And it just did really well. I remember hearing jokes about like how many living legend points will Michael Hamilton win? Will Michael <laughs> Hamilton rotate out of the format? No, seriously. A thousand living legend I points? think he was point for point with Icelander for like like six months out of the year. It was insane. Like he's, I don't have the numbers. I wish I did. I wish I could just like pull these up from the official website, but it's not really built up like that. But I feel like he got at least half of the 1,000 points that Icelander needed. No, I think he got to like 600. Yeah. I think it was like 500 for Worlds and then like... Worlds was 300. Oh, it was 300. Mm -hmm. I know it was like 200 for CC and 100 for Blitz or something. Okay. Because I know he won like several callings with her as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It would maybe now with the uh, with the honor roll we might be able to see something. Yeah, they, the roll of honor like you can see everyone who contributed points, but it doesn't mm. tell you how many they did. Otherwise, it would just be a big bold Michael Hamilton <laughs> at the top, <laughs> and then the like like maybe 10 normal day. It's like his font size fifty Michael <laughs> Hamilton, and then font size like twelve everyone else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I remember getting into this competitive scene and Michael Hamilton kind of representing at the time, like, is Michael Hamilton the best player in Flesh and Blood's history? Because Michael Hamilton was the first world championship in the first ever world championship tournament, and he just kept winning after that. So it was kind of fun to be like, oh, is he the best ever? Like, Flesh and Blood doesn't have, didn't really have many, like, celebrities until that point because we hadn't had a world championships. It was also kind of fun, like, playing in the same local meta as Chris Ayali, who got second at Worlds. Mm. Yeah, fucking legend. It's also kind of funny how, like, after Icelander left popularity, like, it Michael Hamilton doesn't quite have the same, like, gravitas <laughs> as a reputation anymore because it's been a while since he's won a really big event. But I just felt like I had to give a shout-out to Michael Hamilton for being potentially the best player ever for a few months. Yeah, I mean, it is the moment that Icelander that like really captured, I guess everybody in the competitive scene was Michael Hamilton doing all this with Bolander and you can't really separate the two, which Mm -hmm. is why we've given so much space to talking about this one player. Yeah. But like, even still, I would say that the lingering effect of that is that even to the moment right before Icelander living legends out, people are still running wounded bull. Mm-hmm. And find all's fighting spirit. Mm-hmm. He set the he set what Icelander was supposed to look like, and he won the lion's share of points for her living legend. So like, it it was the start and the majority of Icelander's time as the top dog. And then outsiders rolls around in early 2023, and Icelander just kind of completely fell out of favor as Lexi came up. Like, I guess it must have been a bad matchup or something. I wasn't, like, super keyed in to, like, why exactly Icelander, like, stopped winning all these events and stopped getting played so much. All I knew is all my Spike friends were like, yep, no more Icelander. I'm like, okay, sounds good with me because I hated playing (laughs) against Icelander. I'm like a Briar main over here, just, like, unable to play my five-card hands. So if people are playing Icelander, I'm not going to question it. I'm not going to worry about it. (laughs) If I don't have to run as many blues, okay with me. And um, then eventually Rhea Adams comes up and plays a full arcane build for Icelander, completely stepping away from the Bullander precedent that was set by Michael Hamilton. 
and suddenly Iceland is popular again. Um, that was right before the AGE World, the AGE Players Championships. Do you remember mm-hmm. Joel? Mm-hmm. And like, it was sixteen players invited to this like pretty competitive tournament for SoCal, and like there were like six Icelander players, like a, a large oh, percentage. That, that's majority was Icelander. I remember top eight. You had to fight through. How many Icelanders, Fuzzy? Well, like, I beat one in top eight somehow, and then I lost in top four to Anthony Pham. So, yeah. So I will say that's that was largely because the Rangers have a pretty good matchup into uh, Icelander. Like, they have mm-hmm. natural AB and trench uh, bullseye bracers, and then one more in their, mm-hmm. their foot piece or something. That's right. Bullseye bracers had just been hit. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Even before that, uh, during the Outsiders meta, she had it for a while. So she had really good AB into uh, what's her face into Icelander, uh, and then at the AGE tournament, I know a lot of people were not on Lexi. Like they were going uh, Icelander, mm-hmm. or I guess with, with no Lexi, people were felt more free to play Icelander. So that's why there was just like I think five or six of them, right? Mm-hmm. Just in our local meta, it definitely felt like an explosion in Icelander coming back. Mm-hmm. Like it was like oh. We couldn't play her for the last four months. Here we come again. Someone, someone's this Ray Adams is like mm-hmm. doing really well, and then in twenty twenty three, late twenty twenty three, where we are now, we just had our World Championships where it was five that won the event, but Icelander came all the way to finals again. <laughs> yeah. Right, like Icelander was that close <laughs> to winning both of the only world championships that the game has ever had. Wow, that's such an interesting framing, actually. They're a 50% win rate, bad deck. Yeah. <laughs> but even just whenever we're like talking about the dominance of a hero and like um, how long the hero stays in the meta, that's what we did when we talked about Lexi, Icelander should also be up there in that conversation of sure. just sticking around for a very long time towards the top. Mm-hmm. I still think it's crazy that people were convinced that she wasn't that good. I don't. I think people were lying. <laughs> she, her matchup against Lexi was really, really bad. Sure. But like, what about all the other heroes, you know? I don't know. <laughs> so lastly, I want to give a shout out to Kevin Zonker, who won Battle Hardened Wallonia and finally earned enough points for Icelander to actually hit Living Legend. And I was looking at the chart. She's at 1,012 points which is a little bit special because it's the closest to actually 1,000 at the end of a career any of the heroes are. Like, mm. Icelander is only 12 points above the requirement, and that's a lot closer than any other hero. So she has the fewest amount of Living Legend points out of all the Living Legend heroes. And that's also thanks to this new Living Legend system as well. Yeah. Uh, because she doesn't have an extensive season after that for the next BNR uh, to accumulate more points. That's why you see like Starva at what, like 1500 or something mm-hmm. astronomical like that. Yeah. Icelander never really got her last hurrah. Yeah. Worlds was almost that. If I think Icelander wins that matchup mm-hmm. and takes the world championship, then that is the last hurrah, right? Right. Big giant 300 point, throw her into 1200 living legend point range. And it's a big celebration of like, she went out winning both of the world championships that we've had so far. Yeah. But now, because it carried over into the next season, she just kind of got this little 20-point or, like, 30-point little bump. Yeah. It was, like, anticlimactic in a way. It really is. And I think a lot of players, especially players who are fans of these heroes, don't like that. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, I will say when Old Him rotated, I know a lot of people who still played him for a few months afterwards to try and farm the rest of the PQs because it was 
smack dab mm-hmm. in the middle of the PQ season. And I can count like literally three or four people on, on the top of my head who won while he was technically LL'd. And I enjoyed playing him. Like I think everyone who I was like kind of testing with around that time was like, keep playing him as long as you can because there's going to be a time where you can't anymore and it's going to suck. And I, I actually did miss playing old him. And so I feel for the Icelander players who liked Icelander. Like I'll give a shout out to Brian Hefner. A uh, very good friend of mine who lives in, uh, well, he plays like out in the Ontario area. That guy's cool. He's very cool. Uh, he's a like one of the best wizard players I know, and he loved Icelander because it was like the first competitively viable wizard he can play. And it, I haven't talked to him in a while, but I know he's got to be hurting. Like after you know, Icelander not being good for so long, and then all of a sudden gone to a battle harden. Mm-hmm. So that's like what I think of when I think of Icelander and her impact on the game and the culture of Flesh and Blood. Um, and she's also a hero that's a little bit close to my heart because she was a tough opponent as I was trying to learn Briar in the competitive scene. She represented the competitive scene for a lot of the time when she was at the top of the meta. And I haven't been playing the competitive scene as much lately, and she rotated out. So when I get yeah. to start fresh in the new season coming up, it'll be a whole new world where I don't have to worry about frostbites. Speaking of not having to worry about ice in the upcoming competitive season, uh, Clark, what do you have for us for Yellow Pitch? Yeah. For Yellow Pitch, I wanted to talk about Ice acting as a gatekeeper and as our big control archetype that we've seen so far. Yeah, we've talked about Guardian and Fatigue matchups before on this channel and before on this podcast, but I wanted to specifically talk about how Ice feels more like our quote-unquote blue from Magic the Gathering, right? Mm. It's our counter spells and disruption, and it's all about controlling the battlefield, slowing the game down, setting up a big combo win. That's what ice feels like to me. So ice is really defined by a couple of different mechanics. Frostbites, Frozens, and Discards. And a little bit of Dominate in there, too. But those are really the main mechanics that have defined ice, but we really only end up talking about one of those, Frostbites. Mm. Really? I think so. Like, I never hear anybody talking about the Frozen effects. Yeah, but like the discard, come on, <laughs> Winter's Bite, Aether Ice Vein. Kill myself. My cards are just like falling out of my hands. <laughs> I'm paying your taxes. What do you want? <laughs> Why do I keep losing cards? It's <laughs> so funny. Yeah, we talk about the discard a little bit, but it's definitely more of a of a generic thing that we see. Like Pummel also has discard on it. It's true. Discard is an effect that is attached to other archetypes. Well, Frostbites and Frozen is really locked into just ice. I know one of you menaces out there that's listening was probably running Icelander with Wounded Bull and Pummel at some point. Oh, <laughs> God. Oh, you rat bastard. <laughs> I don't know who you are. I've never heard of you, but I know you exist. <laughs> now, I think a really big thing that ice actually did in a very fair way, because pe- whenever people talk about ice... It's very unfair. People really don't like playing against ice because Mm -hmm. it stops you from doing the things that you want to do. And that is very annoying. It's like if you were suddenly playing Call of Duty, but then your mouse speed was really reduced. (laughs) So you can't like flick your mouse across the screen. You just have to like drag it across your mouse pad like four or five times. I did not need that flashback to hell. Oh my God. (laughs) That's so funny. (laughs) <laughs> it just stops you from doing the fun things, oh, right? Man. There's, But there's a lot of complexity in it. 
one thing that I think is very interesting about frostbites and a lot of these tax effects that ice really carries with it is that it forces people to run more blue cards in their decks. So decks like Dromai or like Yellow Line Prism are all of a sudden having a lot of t difficulty dealing with Icelander because, okay, not only are you having to deal with sources of arcane damage where you want a blue to prevent as much arcane damage as possible through arcane barrier, but you also want to be able to pay the taxes of a red winter's bite. Mm -hmm. You want to be able to pay three to stop yourself from having to discard a card. It's funny you mentioned the red winter's bite because I've, I've only ever seen that as like a tech against like old him because, uh, Oldham could oftentimes pay into the uh, Winter's Bite effect, like if it's just a blue, uh, and like, you know, pay for Chrono Seeds or AB or Rampart or whatever um, the case may be. And uh, Prism and Dromai, because they're illusionists, have like better matchups into Icelander specifically. But Dromai, like, I think the difference between her list and now, which is really interesting, is like maybe like six blues of difference. Uh, I th yeah, I think it's they, not too much. Yeah, but it sounds it like is, a lot though. It is present. I remember I had a very interesting approach to my Viscerai deck because I just ran five, six extra blues in my list, mm -hmm. and I ran AB four into Icelander to try to like fatigue the Icelander out. Mm -hmm. And the couple times I ran up against an Icelander, they were very surprised by my playstyle, and they were pretty close games. Oh yeah, if you if you present AB four against uh, an Icelander, I think like you have a very good shot at fatiguing. Uh, it's just like them softening you up with those attacks. We have to worry about too. So with these tax effects that are pulling resources out, whether that's the frostbites or hey, you don't get go again unless you pay two, like on Blizzard, discard a card unless you play two, whatever it may be, it's forcing you to have a lot more resources available for every single turn, and that messes with a lot of hands. Mm -hmm. Like the way that I construct my decks, the way I think most people construct their decks is that they think, okay, when the opponent arsenals and passes to me and I have a full four card hand, what am I doing? And typically you want to play as many of those cards as possible to present as much damage as possible. So that is one resource card and then three cards that you are playing. But now all of a sudden against ice, you need two resource cards and then only playing two cards but then you're presenting less damage. So the games are going longer and it's easier for them to block. And then it's easier for them to disrupt you more so that you need the two resource. And it just makes everything so much more awkward and uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to draw that all red hand. And all of a sudden your life is just a nightmare and you're not enjoying yourself. Yeah. Never. I've been so sad to see all red hands that when I'm up against an ice hero. Yeah. And I think nothing explains this more than Aether Ice Vein. Aether Ice Vein is this Icelander card that I think encapsulates everything that makes Icelander annoying. It is a big source of arcane damage that gets over arcane barrier that most people reasonably run. Mm -hmm. And then it also makes you discard unless you pay a tax. To properly deal with an Aether Ice Vein, you need like three blues in hand to stop as much damage as possible, stop yourself from discarding, and then still be able to attack with something on the next turn. Throw an Insidious Chill in there and you can't even do that. Your turn is just over because there's too much to deal with. Yeah, a lot of times like you would just kind of be like, okay, 
red ether ice fang coming in for five. I'll block one with a blue with Arcane Barrier, and then I'll pay the other two with the remainder of the blue from the tax. So I'm taking a nice damage hit, but I'm only losing one card out of my hand. Yeah, because if they're presenting like a two card four on their turn, then you're kind of okay with like just like, okay, I'm saying goodbye to one blue, whether it be to three AB or one AB and the the two to prevent the discard. That's a pretty good trade-off, I think, because like you said, Clark, there's so many ways that the Icelander deck can rip cards out of your hand. So really every turn it's like, how can I salvage this and still play stuff on my turn and not leave myself empty-handed and get like boned at the, you know, when they uh get back priority. Yeah, it was uh, the doubling up that always felt rough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Clark is saying, like they play ready through ice spin on their turn, they arsenal some zero cost blue card, maybe even like a winter's bite. And then on my turn, I just gave you my blue, my precious blue. <laughs> and now you are asking me to um, discard another card or pay two resources or and like give me a frostbite. And it's just like hitting me on both ends. Yeah, it's the constant disruption. But also, if you have to play against it, you are now making so many more slots in your deck. Not to do the fun things that you want your deck to do. But to stop yourself from just getting completely run over by Icelander disruption. Right. You are adding now a bunch of these extra blues. What are you cutting for that? Probably reds and yellows. And then you also need to make sure you have room for Arcane Barrier. Mm. And now all and it just compounds and compounds into your deck. You need like 10 slots to deal with Icelander. And that's not fun. And like, do you guys want to talk about like Oldham and Lexi too? Sure. I think this is an opportunity to. Because Oldham and Lexi were a little bit more balanced in that they threw most of their disruption on their turn. <laughs> like, Channel Like Friendship. <laughs> was, oh my god, we haven't even gotten to Channel Like Friendship. Was this crazy card where like all of your tax effect, like you get taxed for every card, like for the rest of the turn. And if you can throw a Frostbite on top of it, it would just like double stack up. It would be so annoying to play against. Especially if like all you're doing is playing channel like frigid, even then like you're kind of as an Oldham or Lexi player, probably giving up some damage to wait, did it have go again? Sure did. It was crazy. <laughs> Why does this card have go again? <laughs> you don't have you can still front and attack as well as lay down this channel like frigid and it stops D reacts on your turn. It prevents your opponent from being able to really capitalize on a five card hand because every card they play costs an extra resource. Where are you going to get the extra resources for that fuzzy? Yeah, it felt like Icelander with no cards in hand was just as disruptive and annoying as an Icelander with five cards in hand. The only difference was how much damage are you leaking while also trying to deal with their disruption. Yeah, because it, it, it's a very special case too because no, like a lot of turns that Icelander has also incorporate some like physical elements too with the bullender list, which normally you'd be like, oh, cool, I can block this damage, and there's no disruptive effects. They go like, you know, scar for a scar into like a wounded bull for eight, right? Which like, okay, I'll just take this. I have a full grip. And then what if they are still like a channel like frigid? So they leak in twelve, and or like you know uh, upwards of like six or eight, and then they play channel like friendship on your first attack, and now you have to pay the frostbite and an extra resource on your next attack, bro, you're yeah. not coming back from that game. But one thing that that did do was stop big go-wide strategies because it mm -hmm. created this high resource cost to start your turn. Yeah. 
And then also with all the ability of stop and go again and channel like friendship, making things cost more every single time you play it, it also stopped the go wide strategies as well. Mm -hmm. Which I think that's my favorite part of ICE is like, I think there always needs to be something to be able to deal with these go wide aggro strategies. Yeah. And in previous games, like for instance, like Magic the Gathering, it's a bit easier to be a control deck because you just shoot like their creatures and they can't attack anymore. Mm -hmm. Whereas you kind of have to like stop their turn completely or make it so that that last card is just a little too pricey after the frostbites or discards that you have to, you're forced to arsenal it or pitch it to arcane barrier. Like ice was pretty overwhelming uh, in Tales of Aria and in Uprising. And that's a, one of the reasons why I liked ice. Like the, I feel like there always has to be some sort of deck that can right. combat aggro in a way. Like after Icelander lost Hypothermia, that kind of gave free reign to some of the decks, like uh, even Briar and Dash, because they don't have like mm -hmm. uh, built-in go again, and they both have natural AB that they can slot in uh, very easily. And it's a little bit different than like uh, or other games with control decks, like Magic: The Gathering, for instance. Like you can just shoot the creatures or remove the creatures, and they can't attack. Like you have to find a way to either make that last card in an aggro decks. And like too pricey after like the frostbites or whatever, and arsenal or like just stop their turn, you know, very quickly if you feel like they're gonna have a, a power turn. Yeah, I've definitely appreciated that about ice. I've been complaining a lot today, um, <laughs> just because I I do have that bias being a briar main, an aggro player. I've never really gotten into these ice archetypes and seen it from their side. Mm -hmm. I mostly just like play heroes that get countered by them. <laughs> but I really do think it's important in this game. Like, look, this is not a game with a board state. It's playing hand-to-hand. -hand. How can we introduce disruption or control, interactivity, basically, into this type of a game state? Because it's going to look different. It's going to look different than Magic the Gathering, Hearthstone, any other trading card game we've really played before, because this game isn't like other trading card games. Mm -hmm. But we still want that interactivity. We still want disruption. We want to be able to say, um, I do have some control over how much damage you're doing to me or how many cards you're able to play, because this isn't solitaire. This is a one-on-one, -on -one, a little dance that we're doing together, and what are some other ways that we can visualize that? And ICE is Legend Story Studios doing that. And I like it overall. I just feel like it can feel really disruptive, really unfair at times when I'm getting like really taxed and I feel like I can't play anything and I have to block and I can't even really block out all of your damage. And again, that again might just be my <laughs> bias from playing no, Briar. I I think I want to reiterate that thing I said earlier of like, she feels just as disruptive on low card hands as she does on high card hands. Oh, yeah. It's equal amounts of disruption coming at you no matter how much resources you're stripping from her. And that's partly because of the turn cycle playing, right? Yeah. Like, Wizard is also interesting because it breaks the normal turn cycle that you're playing with in Flesh and Blood. We set up the fundamental rules. Wizard breaks them in this way. Ice breaks them in this way, and bringing them together, Ice Lander, you get the disruption and the can-happen-at-any-time looming threat that makes it really hard to evaluate whether you're in the lead, you know? Yeah, and, you know, I, I kind of want to circle back to the point of this whole section of, like, Ice being a gatekeeper. Like, even though there's still some aggro decks, like, running around with Ice Lander being present... There are some decks that would just like literally you could not play this deck. Like for instance, um, Bolton 
of course, I'm going to find a way to fit Bolton in this conversation. No, I've like heard other people like now that Icelander is off the scene. Yeah, it's they're able to run Bolton, which doesn't really want to run any blues at all. Right. We are strictly a yellow line deck, and all of our stuff has conditional go again, and all of our stuff requires a a tertiary card. Uh, to charge into our soul. Mm-hmm. It's and so, very resource dependent. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, all of these frostbites and discard effects, like the premier aggro decks can kind of weather that storm because they have blues to fuel the reds, like Clark mentioned earlier. Well, what if your entire deck is bl- yellow, so you can't really pitch into anything efficiently, and you require like one extra card more than every other hero at all times to do anything? Yeah, Bolton seems to have a particularly bad matchup, which mm-hmm. I want to iterate that that is fine. It is okay for an archetype to stuff a particular playstyle, maybe even a particular hero. It sucks, and I would like to avoid it as much as possible, mm-hmm. but it is okay to have bad matchups in this game. Mm-hmm. Guys, I promise you, it is okay for your hero to have bad matchups. But I think that it's like, how can control be healthy? Mm-hmm. And that was ultimately, I think, the big conversation and why people are constantly talking about frostbites. Mm -hmm. Is frostbites a healthy way of controlling the game? I think the weird thing about it is on paper, the idea is like, look, your things cost an extra resource this turn. You have to give me one extra resource in order to play your cards. Like in Magic, if something costs one extra mana, it's not a huge deal because I pitch... tap five of my lands instead of four or something. Mm-hmm. Or maybe I can't play this card yet, I have to wait a turn for it. But because flesh and blood can be very finicky as to what I'm able to do with my cards, like if I have, in if I'm only holding two cards and one of them perfectly pays for the other, I go from being able to play this maybe a, a seven, a three for seven, right? I'm coming in with Wounded Bull as an example. And you now give me an attacks of one extra resource. Now this card does nothing. Maybe I can play neither card and I have to arsenal one and I'm wasting a card. And the finicky nature of flesh and blood hands is, I think, what makes frostbites a little over the edge. Where it's not just paying one extra resource means I deal one less damage. It means I deal like lots less damage potentially. Yeah. I could ruin my entire hand. Yeah. Like one well placed frostbite can equal like insane amounts of damage saved off your life total, which mm-hmm. is relevant because you're starting at 36 instead of like 40 like everyone else is. If we had a little bit more flexibility with our hands, like a lot of cards that have two different casting costs, for instance, or just it was balanced around a five-card hand instead of a four-card hand to give you that extra flexibility, I could see Frostbites being a little bit less toxic. For Yeah. And I wish I had a better word than toxic to use here, but I think like you'd be surprised coming from an outsider looking in, how crazy disruptive just paying one extra single resource can be in this game where you have like only four cards in your hand to work with and you're trying to use as many as possible. Yeah, and I wouldn't even say like frostbites are toxic per se. I think they're just overwhelming. Like there's a lot of elements in this game where like I think with enough time we'll have enough in the like the generic card pool and within each individual class that helps us deal with like more problematic strategies. So maybe we see frostbites later on and it's not that bad. But for right now, because like the game is like we're seeing a lot of heroes rotate, we're getting a lot of, you know, bans and restricted announcements out and stuff like that. I think it it, it was just like extremely powerful and you couldn't really like deal with all of it as a whole unless you errata an entire hero. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it, 
I think it was, you know, overwhelming. Um, probably needed for the aggressive decks that were currently in the meta. Um, but yeah, just really overwhelming for yeah. every other hero. I can even think of some small changes to Frostbites that would make it a lot more flexible. Like, <clears throat> if I could pay one resource to just to get rid of the Frostbite, even without using any abilities, that would be cool. Because then when Lexi puts them on me on her turn... You could still pitch cards into them. Mm-hmm. Especially if I already pitched in order to stop her, like, on hits from, from happening, right? Yeah. To be able to double up a little bit easier. So, things like that. If I'm going to summarize sort of what ice was and what ice is going to be in the future, the way I would put it, like, is this. There were healthy elements of ice. I don't think everyone, anyone was really super bothered by disruptive effects that you could pay for with attacks, right? Mm -hmm. No one was super upset by Winter's Bite or Insidious Chill even. They felt like very, very strong disruptive cards, but there was counterplay. You can pitch and just accept the fact that you're going to have weaker turns, It's going to be a slower game. They're going to stop you from doing as much as you want to. But then with Frostbites, it just started stacking and stacking and stacking. And with Icelander, we really saw the ability to be disruptive at any point in the game that just really prevented people from being able to play the game. Frostbites ultimately are not the way that we want Ice to look like, and LSS has supported that. They have said, we are going to reevaluate Ice and Frostbite specifically. Mm -hmm. But I think that we do need to look to the future and think about what is Ice going to look like? What is Control going to look like? And how can we make sure that that is healthy as possible? Which I think is a segue into talking about our blue pitch. Joel, what are we doing with Icelander? Oh, I'm so glad you asked, Clark. So... Um, for some reason, I was picked to design the next Ice Wizard. <laughs> we uh, thought it would be funny. Yeah. Uh, the, the stand-in title for this blue pitch is A Hater Makes an Ice Wizard. <laughs> and I guess I'm that hater. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, yeah, so obviously like not being able to play Bolton for the better part of two years has kind of sucked. Like uh, You couldn't really like practice anywhere, with, especially in SoCal, without running into one or two Icelanders that makes you like 3-1 or 2-2, whatever. Um, So with that thought in mind of uh, James White and LSS in general wanting to move away from Frostbites, I was like, how how would you be able to do that and still be impactful as a control deck, right? Because Frostbites and the discard effects went hand in hand. So like either one of them would have been fine, but I think Frostbites really is uh, egregious, like no matter what you slot it into. So like even with this new design, I think it'll be like a, a the greatest equalizer. And another question I was asking myself when designing this uh, next concept of Ice Wizard was, you know, how can wizards be wizards without uh, breaking like this action economy? Um, as stated by James White um, for like Flesh and Blood 2.0 and the Instant Speed podcast, they were kind of hinting at like, we want to limit how accessible like extra action points are to each class other than like maybe Ninja being the premium like free go again uh class yeah they didn't like how icelander could always play a card on the opponent's turn because Mm -hmm. 
you could design your deck to always have a blue non-attack action card that you're arsenaling. For sure, and it, it, that's exactly what Isolander was. You always had something, whether it be disruptive or card advantage-based, like you had something to play and then be able to chip in with Waning Moon for additional damage. So I was kind of uh, thinking of ways to work around that as well. And so my design for these couple of philosophies that I had in mind, um, and this is a working title, uh, don't don't at me, is uh, John uh, Waking Permafrost. Uh, and I'm just thinking like 38 health, 4 intellect, 38 just because it's a wizard is going to be a bit more frail. Wizard's always going to have to have lower health. I think it's a definable aspect of wizards. For sure. Yeah, and you want to be able to kill them faster because they just they have access to more tools than you uh, typically. Uh and for the hero ability, I'm imagining, um, like, uh, say, for instance, like every time an opposing hero plays an action card, uh, create a permafrost token, which is like the new token I'll get into later. And then as a once per turn instant, you can destroy, like, you know, uh, any amount of them, like X, for example, and you can cast something for as an instant, uh, maybe for free, depending on, like, how many uh, tokens you're able to destroy. And uh, the permafrost token itself, uh, I think it should be an affliction so that it synergizes with some of Icelander's uh, other cards, like uh, Freezing Point specifically. Um, and I think it should be like a modal effect. Like, so if you're creating multiple of these tokens, or maybe just one token in ha- with like multiple counters, like every action your opponent plays, they build either more tokens on a board or you build more counters on a singular affliction so that you can. Uh, as the wizard player, like if if your opponent plays three cards, uh, you can either remove three counters or destroy three uh, permafrost tokens and play your next thing as an instant. Um, and then all the permafrost tokens, I think, would have uh, this modal effect of like if you have like only one, then it taxes your opponent's next action by one resource. Uh, if you control two. Uh, you, your opponent can't draw any cards for the turn, and then if you control three, which is like to really uh, like stop the opponent from doing these crazy stuff, is uh, freezing all equipment you can control. Uh, and then permafrost tokens would probably be destroyed at end of turn, or or your uh, either your opponent's turn or your turn, so that you can still use them uh, on your turn as as the wizard. Uh, I have a question for you, Joel. What's your question? What is your philosophy? Like, what is the big idea that you're trying to do with this? So my my philosophy behind this hero, or like what I imagine, is like picture yourself fighting against like permafrost incarnate, right? Mm-hmm. Like this guy is like literally like summoning like storms of ice, like. And how are you as of like? Because flesh and blood in general, like you start off at your strongest and you get weaker as the game goes on. But your strength is going to be sapped further if you're fighting in a snowstorm. So I'm I'm thinking like if you're in a prolonged fight in a snowstorm, you're naturally going to get weaker and weaker. And so if you, for every action you play, you get a permafrost token, and that just makes the you know wizard stronger because you're adding to his like ice or his power source basically. Yeah, I really I like that interplay. I like the interplay between. We're trying to have the permafrost tokens be this thing that really punishes those really big aggro decks that play a ton of things in one turn. Mm -hmm. But at the exact same time, you're also saying, all right, but now you need to sacrifice the disruption that you are giving to the opponent Mm -hmm. so that you can then do something. Right. Yeah, so it's kind of like a push and pull effect between the attacker and the defender. Like, 
you want to you know push the tempo and uh, threaten all this damage and then the like it's a choice right right this player has to make a choice you are either giving the opponent disruption or you are using the the exact same resource to give yourself extra power you have to choose between the two Icelander got to do both at the same time. Right. Now it's one or the other. Right. So this this Icelander like replacement now gets to kind of like cash in the permafrost tokens that you're creating that are disrupting you. And maybe at the end of turn I can like ping you for some damage or maybe add on to the disruption with one of my, you know, new cards or my ice or elemental cards. Uh, as a way to still be a control deck, but not in a way that's like so on demand and so like without interaction from the uh, defending player at, uh, at all, right? Mm-hmm. Like at least the the attacking hero can maybe play like one or two cards that are larger, or maybe mm-hmm. one large attack uh, and be fine. Like a guardian would, I imagine, would be a very enduring hero and would be able to weather the storm and beat this wizard. Whereas a more frail and quick hero, like a, like an aggro player would, would struggle with these uh, compounding effects. Thank you for this design, Joel. Um, I really like this idea of using frostbites as a resource, which we haven't, I know it's not frostbites, it's permafrost tokens, but the idea of using these permafrost tokens as a resource in order to fuel your abilities seems really flavorful and cool. And I like these other ways of disruption that you're experimenting with and how they can be used in the future to define control, stepping away from frostbites. I really like a lot of these ideas and it makes me excited for what um, the future of Ice Wizard holds. Yeah, I think these are great effects. I love freezing. I think freezing is like that underutilized, underthought about mechanic that Ice has. And I like that it's showing up here in a big way. Yeah, like there's that, uh, I think it's a headpiece where you can, it's like a common headpiece. Glacial you, horns, yeah. Yeah, where you can destroy something if it's frozen. I just wish there was more to do with, you know, things being frozen. So that's kind of what I was hoping would be usable in this context. I think there's a card that says, like, if you deal arcane damage and it's fused, you get to, like, destroy a frozen piece of equipment. Or, like, if an equipment has zero block, you can destroy it. Like, oh, exposed yeah. to the elements. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. completely forgot about that card. Yeah, being able to, like, freeze things from a hero ability would make it a lot easier to play cards like that. Mm. And those cards are, I think, a little lower power because no one's really running any freeze stuff. But also, they just... It's it's not Aether Ice Vein, right? Yeah. yeah. I want to see Aether Ice Vein go away and these other cards come in. Yeah, because like if there's another archetype that can deal with armor in an interesting way, that might be kind of cool, but yeah. maybe not like in such a toxic way where like, you know, you just Tomaltai shoot something uh, with, with Dromai, right? Like yeah. uh, you, you just play the card and then you can choose something or like at least Dash has to play like multiple T-Bones or multiple... Um, Meganitic shockwaves to to get rid of equipment pieces. Yeah, you need bigger chains to to have the disruption come through. Right, and this kind of feels the same, right? You need lots of permafrost tokens to do the big broken action point thing, where you get the free action point, mm-hmm. and that's very nice, I think. Yeah, so you know, I'm I'm sure none of this will be relevant in the next hero, but I'm I enjoyed like kind of looking at like what. How how ice can like take form not only in hero uh, design like aesthetic wise because uh, I really like the symbolism uh, with this hero but also like how you can 
you know, disrupt somebody without uh, making it so bad to play against that it just becomes like a worse Icelander or just like an adjacent Icelander. Yeah, I actually kind of, I like that you did a new hero. I'm kind of tired of LSS reprinting yeah. old heroes and new versions because they're like, well, we decided that we like this hero. It would be and kind of like, silly if we like the 20 heroes we have are just the only characters we can play as for the next like 20 years. Oh yeah. That would be very annoying. Yeah. yeah that would just feel lazy at that point. I, I do like seeing new faces show up. And I mm. think that if anything, Tales of Aria is a good opportunity to do that because they had, I think in the lore, they had their big adventure where they saved the world. Mm. And so it, it'd be nice to see some new heroes come in with Tales of Aria. Yeah. Cool. So you, you guys want to go to the Arsenal Zone now? Sounds good. Thanks again, Joel. Our Arsenal Zone is the part of the podcast where we all shout out a card that's been on our minds lately for whatever reason, be it good or bad. So, Clark, why don't you start us off with what you've been thinking about lately? Sure. The day that we are recording this podcast, uh, a new card got revealed for heavy hitters. It's Luminaris. And now we have three Luminarises. And there's so much conversation around the new Luminaris that I was thinking about all three of them. And I'm thinking it's the good, the bad, and the balanced. The good one is really just kind of broken. The old Luminaris that just gave all of your illusionist attacks free go again and also made all of hey, your weapons. You had to pinch a yellow card in order to give them Oh go my god, <laughs> how hard, how difficult. <laughs> and then they way reduced the power with Celestial Fury by just being able to give one Herald attack go again. And now I think it, they've sort of settled somewhere in the middle. It seems a lot more balanced. If you pitch a yellow card, yes, not a difficult condition to meet at all, your first Herald attack and your first Angel attack gain go again. You're not making all of your auras tokens, so you can't block with, like, nine resources, pitch two, swing for 12 sources of one damage. That's not happening here anymore. So I, I like that it's a lot more fair in that way. You're no longer getting these ridiculous values out of one card hands. You need to keep a bit more to to have stuff go on. And it might just be like the fact that it's only giving go again does kind of like lend itself to wanting larger hand sizes, you know, um, whereas the first Luminaris gave all your attacks go again, but did not require you to have a large hand in order to use all of those things. Yeah. Um, this also interestingly makes Light of Soul kind of a valid card because when you pitch a yellow, you actually get three resources that's every a, time you pitch a, a light card, it gives you, you one vesti- more resource. Vestige of Soul. Vestige of Soul, that's the card. I Something has to go into your soul first, right? Yes. Yeah. Oh. Never mind, that card's bad. <laughs> <laughs> but I've been thinking about the three Luminarises, because I think that they are interesting cards. I think it's very interesting to talk about how this Luminaris will change the way we think about this new 32 health prism that was supposedly destroying everybody in playtesting. Uh, so for my card, I was uh, told to think about like a card that uh, I was thinking about at our local armory on Wednesday, and I sleeved up Bolton for the first time in a long time, and it felt really good to play him again uh, with no threat of ice anywhere, which is very flavorful for this episode. <laughs> but I realized that I didn't put back a card that I took out originally, which was via the Vanguard, 
And that's kind of like an important card in Bolton. That's like what makes Bolton worth playing is being able to play via the Vanguard from your arsenal off your tunic, charge twice, raided, and then Bolting Blade for free. Like that's like the premier turn, and I didn't have any of that power, but I still did pretty good. So I was just thinking about this card and how excited I am to finally be able to play it again and see how I can stack up as an aggro deck versus like you know Fi since he's uh, running around winning worlds and stuff. Dromai still around, uh, typically a very hard matchup for Bolton, but hasn't been tested since Dust Till Dawn really came out. And then uh, you know obviously the mechanologists are still. Uh, Pretty good matchups for Bolton, but yeah. maybe if we're straying away from Sabres and more on this raiding game plan, it gets different. So I know just some things to consider, but ultimately very happy that I can play these um, Light Warrior cards again. I'm excited to see you bust them out. I keep hearing tales, legends of <laughs> Joel's Bolton game, but I don't actually get to see it that often. Everyone's also online just kind of whispering about Bolton. They're like, guys, Bolton, 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 Bolton. <laughs> and it's just like, yeah, put up some results. Let me see him in top eight. Where is he at? And I never see him, but everyone's still just kind of like... We talk yeah, about no, Yuki Lee Bender see. just got top eight with him at the uh, the Rumble. The Realm Rumble? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the first top eight I've seen, and I feel like people have been whispering about Bolton since Dust Till Dawn. Like, it's just this constant... Bolton's fucking sick. Mills for life. <laughs> steady whisper of, like, Bolton's here. He's somewhere. It's just it. I can't wait to see someone break through and really show what. Dude, that it's gonna happen. Do. Tis the season. So the card that I'd like to shout out today is Descendant Gust Wave. <laughs> that wasn't very nice, Joel. <laughs> I don't fucking like that card. <laughs> yeah, that card fucked me up in the game you and I played. So. I just want to shout out this card. It's been on my mind because I have been trying to decide what deck I'm going to like play more competitively. And it's probably going to be Katsu. I started out with Katsu. He was like one of my first heroes. I kind of learned the game through him. And he got a whole bunch of support and outsiders that I haven't had a chance to um, play. So I actually sleeved it up at the armor yesterday. I was throwing Bonds of Ancestry. I had like a double Bonds turn against Clark. That was pretty disgusting. Double Double... <laughs> Descendant Gust Wave into double red bond. Like, it was two red Descendant Gust Waves into two red bonds. Like, it was so hard to that's, sit there. That's 14 damage, uh, not including the second bonds trigger. Yeah. Which was probably like zero for four or something. It was nutty. So, it's kind of crazy, and it's fun, and I've been playing it lately. Is Fuzzy back in the meta? <laughs> Is Fuzzy entering the scene again? Descendant Gust Wave will be there for me as I potentially do. So I got a card to sign for both of you. I'm sorry you guys hate it. <laughs> I don't hate it. If anything, I actually hate Bonds of Ancestry because it costs two. It shouldn't be reduced to zero because of the combo. <laughs> yeah. It should be reduced to one. I think being able to throw a zero for four go again that then also tutors a card from your deck is... A bit too much. Yeah, I'll be honest. This is really me trying to shout out Bonds of Ancestry, <laughs> but I didn't have two extra copies except for blues. And I was like, I'm not even sure I want to give up my blues in case I need them for deck building or something. So Yeah, it's weird because like you you can now off of one singular blue, you can go Kadachi, Surging Strike, Descendant Gust Wave, Bonds of Ancestry into Dishonor. Here's one yeah. for you one and one for you. Thank you, Fuzzy. Signed Thank copy of Descendant Gust Wave just for you. Now I just need Two more, so I can not play Katsu. Why does this get plus two from combo? Why isn't it just plus one to a four break point? But you don't like zero for fives? No! <laughs> <laughs> Off of just combo? 
I feel like they pushed this. Yeah. I feel it like- It only blocks for two, bruh. Oh, <laughs> my apologies. Thank you for listening to us talk about Icelander and other cards. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day, whoever you are, and join our Discord. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. Pitch It To Me podcast is hosted by Joel Racinos, Clark Moore, and Fuzzy Delp. Our executive producer is Talon Stradley. Our logistics coordinator is John Farkas. Music is produced by Dylan Hulse. Logo is designed by Han V. And our sound mixing is done by Christopher Moore. Last but not least, thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to our podcast. Be sure to give us a follow on your favorite social media platform at Pitch It To Me Podcast. 